It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You are Locked On Thunder, your daily Oklahoma City Thunder podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Let's get it going on the Lockdown Thunder Podcast on the Lockdown Podcast Network, your teams every day. I am your host, Rylan Styles. You can follow me on Twitter at Rylan underscore Styles. That's at R-Y-L-A-N underscore S-T-I-L-E-S. On today's show, brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use promo code LOCK15 to get 15% off your next order. I'm joined by Ben Golliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. His new book, Bubble Ball, is available May 4th, but you can pre-order it right now on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing very, very well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, we've been chatting here over the last couple of days and you uh, informed me that Thunder fans are never afraid to go revisit last year's team. I know this season's kind of gone off the rails a little bit with some injuries and maybe some positioning for the draft picks. But the 2019-2020 Thunder team was really fun. Obviously, Chris Paul, fingerprints all over it. And then about my book, you know, the, the bubble ball. You know, Chris Paul had his fingerprints all over the bubble experience itself as the head of the Players Association. So I think you and I probably have a lot to dig into, don't we? Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, last year's team just holds such a, a special place in, in Thunder fans' hearts because it was murky there after the trading away of Russell Westbrook, the last real pillar of, of the franchise's first era of, of basketball. And a small market team, you never know how teams will recover. And then you make the Paul George trade, the Russell Westbrook trade, and you kind of left in limbo for a little bit. And then you just get a magical fun. What's what's always been termed Oklahoma City is a house money season of just whatever happens, happens and let's play it out. And luckily the Thunder did play it out despite trading Gallinari at the deadline and not trading with the deadline because the heat couldn't extend them. Uh, so it was fun, <laughs> but, but t- taking us back to March 11th, which again, Oklahoma City is right in the middle of Utah jazz come to town and the season's put on pause that night, March 11th. And then into March 12th, and the season's been on pause and suspended. What what was your initial reaction of what would happen with the rest of this NBA season? Well, it's an absolutely great question. So I was at home in Los Angeles watching that game on TV. You know, when they're, when the Donnie Strat goes running on the court, I remember thinking, oh, no, here we go. Uh, when the PA addresser is saying, everybody's safe. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, like, are they safe? Are they really safe? Should they be running out of there? And for me, it came at a really interesting time because I had just gotten back from Minnesota and I had done a story. Uh, with the Timberwolves front office about some of their plans for player development. And they had put me through my paces and I had been tested by them and they made me do a workout on the court. They tracked my shooting percentages. I was so excited to write this story about what's it like to be a, you know, a young player coming into an organization and how do you fit in and how do they decide how you stack up? And while I was there, uh, it was becoming clear that this COVID thing was going to be a real big deal. And a couple of days before I left, LeBron had said, Hey, look, if there's no fans, I, and I'm not going to play. And I was sitting thinking, well, something's going to have to give here. This doesn't all quite add up because I was actually there with the Timberwolves 
when their executives addressed the team and said, hey, we're going out on this road trip. Here's going to be some of the precautionary measures that we've got to you know, take uh, into consideration to keep you guys safe. Carl Anthony Towns was there, you know, nodding along very intently listening to this speech. And of course, you know, he would never have known, but, you know, five, six weeks later, you know, his, his mother dies from COVID. And so that's how quickly things really hit. And so I came back from Minnesota, all excited to kind of write this story about, uh, you know, their training program. And, you know, as I'm flying back through the airport, it's a ghost town. There's nobody there. I'm getting messages from my college friends who are now doctors who are saying, dude, why are you flying? Are you crazy? Like, do not go onto a plane again until this thing is over. You better buckle up and stay at home. And I was sitting there that week, you know, pretty nervous after going through that experience, seeing how the Timberwolves were reacting to it. You know, they didn't want to necessarily shake hands. Some of the players weren't totally comfortable having reporters in the bubble at that point, or sorry, in the locker room at that point. And it just was all very surreal. But I was scheduled to cover a game that Thursday between the Rockets and Lakers. And so when the scene in Oklahoma City took place, my first sensation was relief because this meant I didn't have to go down to Staples Center to cover this game because I wasn't particularly comfortable at that point. And it didn't really dawn on me until after I had written the story um, about, you know, the NBA suspending the season. And I had really kind of thought through what the next steps might be in terms of how long this could last. Sorry. It took a couple of uh, you know days for me to really process this notion that we could be without basketball for months and potentially not have a resolution to the season. And at that point, I was just sick to my stomach, nauseous. You know, I'm thinking about all these hours, guys like LeBron and Giannis and Kawhi Leonard put into those seasons and to have that all potentially just be at risk now because of this virus. You know, I I just, my heart went out to them. I know how devoted they are to their crafts. And I was just kind of hoping, you know, somehow, some way, could they pull something back together? And so pretty quickly after that, I was brainstorming. I was like, how can they find a way to salvage this season. What does it look like? Do they have to go to some like abandoned island, right? Do they go to Las Vegas and do something like summer league where they can try to keep the players safe there? And so when they were kind of getting the bubble idea together, I was, you know, I was really happy. I was like, Hey, this could be great. This could be exactly what we needed. But at the same time, I was, you know, sort of like a lot of other people, is this real? Are are they really going to be able to do it? And obviously that that took several months to play out to to determine, Hey, they're actually going to be able to find a way to save this thing. When was that first time that you heard the inkling of there's going to be a bubble and it's going to be in Disney World and, and this could even be a possibility? When was that first whisper of, hey, Disney World and this bubble, it's legitimate? Well, the, the first talk was actually before the NBA even shut down because it was happening overseas. You know, China and these other countries were trying to find ways to continue their sports um, during the pandemic. And at that point, you know, I think that, as, you know, we're naive Americans, right? So we're thinking, oh, that's never going to come over here. That's never really going to impact us. So my, my wheels were already turning, you know, right in March, really about how could they try to do this? Because I knew the NBA had a lot of money. Obviously it's a a very wealthy league. You know, it makes in a typical year, more than $8 billion per year. And I also knew that they were going to have a lot of motivation to crown a champion, because if you go back in NBA history, uh, this is the 75th season of the NBA every single year, they have crowned a champion. Right. And so There's a lot of pride about that. You know, it would be a very, very bitter pill to swallow for the executives and for the superstar level players to not have a champion crown. And so I knew there would be a lot of internal motivation about it. The question just was whether or not they could keep the players safe and how would they do it? And, um, you know, like a lot of people, you know, one of the first people to float uh, Disney World uh, was Keith Smith with Yahoo Sports. And he had a column, I want to say it might have been in April, saying, hey, maybe Disney World could be a host for this. 
And I think the initial reaction to that column, because it wasn't necessarily sourced, it was just kind of a brainstorm idea, was a lot of skepticism. You know, you think, oh, come on, you know, like professional athletes living in Disney World, that sounds crazy. Like, what are they going to do? Go ride the rides, you know? And, you know, usually you go to Disney World after you win the title to celebrate, right? That's like the famous commercial line from when we were kids, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to Disneyland. Um, but, you know, as you started to think about it, well, it would be empty because there's no tourists there. They've got sports facilities because of the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. There's a relationship between the NBA uh, and, you know, Disney because of Bob Iger and, and the television contract with ESPN and ABC. So it all kind of was lining up and making some sense. And so it didn't take me very long to come around to the idea. But my biggest hang up the whole time was, could you get the players to buy into the health and safety protocols? Would they really be willing to live almost this isolated dorm-like environment for months, potentially without their families? And would they be able to stick to the rules, right? Uh, or would they try to stray off of the campus? Would they try to, you know, get the Postmates delivery that they weren't supposed to get? Uh, would they try to, you know, sneak visitors in? I mean, all those kinds of questions were very legitimate and they wound up proving to be complications for the league. And so to me, uh, you know, I, I love the idea in theory, but it was all about the question of the execution and would it be worth it to the players from a financial standpoint to do it? And once it became clear that, you know, the pandemic wasn't only going to just affect uh, the 2019-2020 season, but there was going to be a carryover impact into the following year and potentially the year after that, and really, there was no financial certainty for the players, um, you know, long term, like they needed to kind of make some decisions in their short term best interest. That's really where the pressure picked up and it encouraged the players to want to go down there and, and participate in the bubble. And so once that started coming together, I said, hey, this thing really has some legs and uh, I think it's going to happen. You mentioned that March 11th was the first time that you really had that sigh of relief for not having to go out anymore. And also that that kind of worry about what this would all turn into. And that was the same thing in Oklahoma, especially because in Oklahoma, even whenever it got to the United States, oh, it's it's on the coast or oh, it's in these heavy traffic places. And now it's right here on our doorsteps. And then you later have that report about Donovan Mitchell, who was practicing at a local high school here. So how many of our youths have been exposed to this from that high school event? Like we didn't know the extent of this. So whenever you heard of the opportunity to go to the bubble, was that something that you immediately jumped at or did you have some reservations about going and how it would all work and kind of being still weary of, of this virus and weary of being around people? Oh, I absolutely had major reservations because the idea of the bubble is it's only as good as its weakest link, right? So I knew I wasn't going to be a huge risk factor because all I do is write and podcast and, and watch games and I can control those things very easily and be kind of isolated. But I was more concerned about what would the players buy in? How big would the bubble get? Would it be too difficult to manage? What would the security setup be like? And when I was initially thinking about these ideas, I was saying, well, look, just bring 16 teams or maybe even just bring eight teams, hold a condensed playoffs, crown a champion, get in, get out and have it be smooth. Right. But the NBA had different ideas because they were looking to generate even more revenue. They wanted to increase the content for their television partners because the season had been suspended three quarters of the way through. So they said, let's bring 22. Let's have regular season games to fulfill the television contracts. Let's have playing games to generate even more interest before the playoffs. Let's have a full playoffs with all 16 teams. When I heard that was the plan, I was like, wow, these guys are biting off a lot. Right. And, and even when I flew there in July to cover it, I was still 50, 50, whether they were going to get to the, uh, to the actual end of the finals. Like I was pretty confident we would get to the start of the playoffs. Right. 
And I did in my mind, I was doing the math calculations and saying, well, look, every time a team is eliminated, it gets, you know, there's fewer people, there's less variables. The whole thing gets to be easier to be managed. But when we all went out there in July, there was a lot of hesitations and questions about was this going to work? And and part of the reason why was they were so strict. And, And sometimes when you have all those rules, it almost makes you, uh, you know, at least at the start, a little bit more paranoid, right? It's like, wow, if we have to be this strict, the, the risk must be really high. So for example, you know, I had to give them my temperature reading and my blood oxygen reading every single morning. I had to fill out a questionnaire every single day about what, uh, you know, if I had any symptoms, I had to get uh, tested every single day. I got 92 tests when I was there in the bubble, which I had never been tested before I got down there. And I couldn't have anyone in my hotel room, obviously. Um, And then, you know, I couldn't eat meals with other people because everything had to be very carefully distanced. And so, you know, a lot of these things were just completely different from any normal life that we had expected, you know, anticipated prior to the pandemic. And I was just living at home, you know, basically by myself here in Los Angeles, not really needing to have any sort of these kinds of concerns in my day to day life. So there was a real adjustment period, no question about it. There was a lot of apprehension going in. But I will say this, when we started to get the results back from the tests and they said, you know, every single day for the first two weeks I was there, you're negative, you're negative, you're negative. The confidence built up. Then they sent out the first email saying, hey, two weeks into the bubble, we've had no positive tests for the players. Wow, that's that's great news. Another two weeks passed. Wow, nobody else has tested positive. And I think at that point, the confidence level went really, really high and the virus almost became an afterthought, right? And some other issues like the player protests um, or, you know, the social justice movement or even just the playoff storylines, those things really came into bigger focus than the actual health concerns because their rules were so strict, they really succeeded in keeping everybody safe. So coming up, we're going to talk about more about the inner workings of this NBA bubble on Locked on Thunder. But first, I want to tell you about our good friends over at Built Bar. Built Bar is a phenomenal protein bar that tastes just like a candy bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use our promo code LOCKED15 to get 15% off your next order. The Built Bars are incredible. They have six brand new flavors, caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. They are all fantastic. My personal favorite, though, is the cookies and cream option. So get your hands on the cookies and cream Built Bar. They also have their 12 original flavors, so so many flavors to choose from for Built Bar. They're all covered in 100% real chocolate on the outside. They're soft and easy to chew. They're great for the conscious person to lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber. Great for the keto diet. Try them today by going to BuiltBar.com using promo code LOCKED15. You're going to get 15% off your next order. That's LOCKED15. Get 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. Again, try that cookies and cream bar out. There's only 12 grams of protein, 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and 4 grams of net carbs. So try them out today, BillBar.com, promo code LOCK15, 15% off your next order. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We're back on Locked On Thunder. I'm Rylan Stiles, talking with Ben Golliver, who wrote the book Bubble Ball, which comes out on May 4th. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. And so, Ben, for 
for those of us who've never been to Disney World or that part of Disney World anyway, with the areas that the NBA were, were permitted, permitted to go, how spread out was the bubble or was it actually pretty suffocating of having a lot of people there in these short kind of quarters? What was the experience like once you did clear quarantine and get to walk around the designated campus? Well, so the campus itself, I mean, Disney World is just absolutely gigantic, but they pretty much contained us to the Coronado Springs Resort, which is sort of like your typical hotel resort you would go to. Now, there was one big hotel, uh, the Grand Destino Tower, and that's where sort of the Lakers and the Clippers and the Bucks played. They used two other hotels at different sites uh, that were close by, but not immediately accessible for the media to house the rest of the teams. And as teams got eliminated, they kind of consolidated the hotels. And then ultimately they were down to just that one hotel by the end of it. But the media's access when we first started was incredibly limited. I walked the entire edge of the pen when I first got there and it was only 0.8 miles around the perimeter. So, you know, it took me basically 12, 13 minutes and that's all I could do. All I could see was a parking lot. I could see a little lakeside view. Um, there were some certain areas for games that were set up. You know, some of the referees would play pickleball. There was an area for uh, media members to go pick up our meals. And then there was about uh, five different areas that housed people, sort of like dormitories. You know, they were four stories tall. And, you know, various media members and camera crews and um, the referees would live in those dorms. And that was it. I mean, that's all we had access to. Now, as the bubble unfolded and everybody was staying safe, they did open up some other walking trails uh, for the media members. So at least we could get in, you know, about a mile and a half, five, uh, a mile and a half uh, loop around the edges, uh, uh, you know, of the of the property so we could get some exercise in. And there was a shipping depot that we could go to every single day. But that was pretty much where we lived for three months. I mean, that was all that was the extent of the entire property. Now, the gyms were off site. And so you would take a shuttle bus to the gym. You couldn't drive there. You couldn't bike there. You couldn't walk there. You had to be on these designated shuttle buses. And when you got to the gyms, there was three of them total to start and they whittled that down to one by the end of it. And so it was a very groundhog day experience. You know, you'd wake up, you'd work out, you'd get your test, um, you know, you'd get ready, you take the bus over to the gym, you'd watch one, two, maybe three games, you take the bus home. And that's pretty much all you did every single day, day after day, after day, after day. And so there was some monotony to it, but you know, it also wound up being a real mental test. I think you heard a lot of the guys, everybody from LeBron James to Eric Spolstra to Michael Malone talking about, you know, how it was challenging from a mental standpoint. And not every team passed that test. You look at the Clippers completely combusting. You look at the Rockets with Daniel House, uh, you know, going out in the second round because he got caught with a visitor in his hotel room. Uh, you look at the Philadelphia 76ers, they could not wait to get home. They got swept out of the first round of the playoffs. It was a real challenge. And, and Chris Paul told me point blank, he's like, look, if, uh, you know, if you're not here in person experiencing this, you're never going to truly understand what it's like here. And that's why he was praising Michelle Roberts, the head of the players union for going down there and living it with the players and going through it on a day-to-day -day experience uh, because he felt like that really built the bonds. And uh, you know, that's what I was trying to do with my book is to, to bring the audience there. This is kind of what it felt like. This is why it was so hard. Uh, this is why it was so challenging. And, just to kind of personalize it for me, you know, there was a whole bunch of wildfires in Oregon while I was there. And my parents are from Oregon. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, man, I wish I could kind of go help them during this pandemic. You know, obviously, you know, flying and traveling is very difficult anyways. But there, it's kind of this helpless feeling. They're 3,000 miles away. And I can't even walk a mile down the street, you know, because of the rules that we had. And knowing, you know, they just they felt so far away. We felt so isolated in this little environment. 
And it just became this kind of a situation where you're just trying to find any way you could possibly help. So for me, I was trying to start a fundraiser to help, uh, help out the fire, uh, the wildfire victims in Oregon. But the whole time I was thinking, man, Oregon feels like a totally different continent or, you know, a completely different country. I mean, it feels so far away. And I think a lot of the players, especially before their families were allowed in, I think a lot of the players shared those thoughts too. And you laid, you've laid out right there a ton of experiences where uh, they're, they're life-changing pandemic and, and the wildfires that, that can affect your family and being so far away from your family. What is something the player protest as well? What is something that you'll take with you forever from this experience of just like, you'll, you're never going to forget that moment. It just holds a place in your heart that maybe changed your life or, or helped change a view or anything like that that you're going to take from this bubble experience. Well, I think the most obvious one is the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, you know, protest, because that's the first time I've covered hundreds and hundreds of NBA games since 2007. The first time I showed up at a game, you know, settled into my seat, looked up and there was only one team on the court, you know, and you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. Something's, something's kind of off. And, you know, there was no advanced warning. You know, they made the decision to not play pretty quickly before the tip off. That was in the middle of a playoff series, which is always going to have the ramped up intensity and, and kind of stress factor of the playoffs. And so I will never forget that day. I, you know, I kind of uh, did a little loop around the arena, just trying to kind of scoop out, Hey, where is everybody? And the Orlando magic had gone back to their locker room. I kind of peeked in their locker room. I could see Vucevic looking around saying, what the heck is going on? Like, what are we even doing here? And I kept walking down the hallway and a whole bunch of NBA officials said, you know, you can't be here. You've got to go over to this other direction. And I realized like, you know, something pretty serious was, was going on. And, you know, we could kind of hear through the locker room walls that the Bucks were on conference calls with officials back in Wisconsin, you know, trying to advocate on behalf of Jacob Blake, who was, uh, you know, shot by a police officer. Uh, we could hear, uh, you know, players coming out of the locker room every once in a while to use the restroom. And you could tell there was a lot just weighing on their mind at that point in terms of, uh, you know, realizing that they were really making history with this boycott of, of shutting down a playoff game and potentially shutting down the bubble indefinitely. We didn't know when games were going to resume. And so in the book, I try to go just, you know, almost minute by minute through that day to take people through what that experience was like. And you had politicians weighing in, you know, I tweeted out my story and AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is retweeting it and talking about how it's this major movement for uh, or a major moment for the labor movement. And you have other conservative commentators weighing in on the other side, you know, saying that, these guys should be getting back to work and they're spoiled millionaires and all this kind of stuff. And so it was a very charged atmosphere. And the biggest part was we didn't know how long it was going to last. And there was all sorts of meetings that Chris Paul was actively involved with the next couple of days, trying to piece the bubble back together. You know, they shared, they called Obama for his advice in terms of how do we, uh, you know, how do we come up with our list of requests for the NBA owners to make sure that we can kind of get this thing back on track in a, in a smart way. And, Thankfully, it was only a three-day shutdown. In hindsight, um, it's kind of amazing they were able to get the whole thing put back together in three days, and uh, the whole thing didn't blow up. But there were some very tense moments there in the aftermath where we were all kind of questioning, like, is this thing going to keep going on? And for me, a, a friend was going to send me a FedEx package that week, and I remember that Wednesday night, you know, texting him and being like, "Hey, don't send it just in case, right? Like, I might be clearing out of here in a couple of days, so don't send a package in, and it's never going to be received." You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, thankfully the whole thing came together and, and, the, and the games continued. The Bucks went on to win the series and, uh, you know, obviously the Lakers went on to win the title. But, you know, we've heard it from LeBron as well. You know, he, there was a moment where he was telling his wife and his mother, I, I think, uh, 
this whole thing just might blow up in our faces. And, and uh, it's just kind of crazy to think that, you know, all those months of social justice activism really came together in a spontaneous display from the Bucks of, hey, we're, we're just fed up. We've had enough. And they sent a huge statement that will never be forgotten. You know, to me, when I look back on some of the bigger, biggest player protests in sports history, I think the Bucks is going to rank right up there for, for a long time to come. I want to tell you right now about our good friends over at betonline.ag. Betonline.ag is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sport action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and NHL are in full swing. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything that you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered. BetOnline is updating their odds, their news, their scores in real time. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. So head over to their website. You can even use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit at BetOnline.ag. All you have to do is go to BetOnline.ag, use our promo code LOCKEDON, you'll receive that 50% welcome bonus, and you can bet with me on every single Thunder game this season. Do not miss out. Tonight they play the Pistons. Go put some money on Detroit. BetOnline.ag, promo code LOCKEDON, 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportbook experts. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late-season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And you mentioned the bubble and talking to people, and I know you have a great great stories in your book and, and great conversations in your book, so... I'm just wondering in the bubble, whenever you're kind of isolated and you really see the same faces every day and you're with these people and you mentioned how as the bubble progresses, you get less and less restrictions. You can talk to more people. Was there a relationship between you and a player or a coach or media member or anybody that grew a lot stronger because of uh, the bubble and because of what you guys experienced there? Well, I would say this, first of all, they definitely wanted to keep the players like in a bubble within the bubble to keep them as protected as possible. Right. So they, they had very strict rules for who could come into contact with the players and they tried to limit when everybody could come in contact with them just to make sure everybody would stay safe. So that's a, a key aspect of their health and safety plan that actually deserves a lot of credit because it worked flawlessly. I do think a lot of the writers and media members who were down there, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're an alumni of a club, you know, like a, fr- a fraternity or sorority where we all kind of carry that badge with us for the, the rest of our careers. Uh, my favorite conversation I had in the bubble was actually with Rudy Gobert, the guy you started with at, at the beginning, because I was able to talk to him right before they played their first game in the bubble. And keep in mind, he's coming off of not only the positive test, but a real bout with COVID that was costing him some of his senses, you know, like uh, yeah, he, he really felt it and was having a hard time. Uh, he got the tingly toes and you know, sense of smell was gone for a while. And so he was really in a place where that COVID had really impacted his life. And so much so that he had not been able to see his mother who lives in France for the entire, for months, you know, they, they were separated because it just wasn't safe for her to come over to America. And there was actually some travel restrictions there for a while as well. And so he had had a lot of time to think about everything. Remember Donovan Mitchell was so upset about him that he went on good morning America and kind of called him out there for a while. There was questions were one of those guys going to have to get traded because it was such a personal situation with their health. 
because Rudy got you know sick or he tested positive first, and then Mitchell did after the fact. And this just gave Rudy Gobert a lot of time to think about these topics. And he was just very candid with me uh, in terms of how he felt the media had portrayed him inaccurately. He's like, you know, I'm not the person who brought COVID to America. You know, this is obviously much bigger than just me. I was just the first person who tested positive. It's not my fault the NBA shut down. Uh, you know, it's the disease's fault. And he made a lot of really good points on, on that front. Um, you know, and I, I think what I was really struck by, he learned his lesson. You know, you remember that video where he was touching all the microphones. Everybody thought he was so reckless. And it's totally fair to criticize his opinion uh, or his behavior in that uh, because it was, you know, clear that uh, he just hadn't taken the disease seriously up until that point. Right. But when I saw him uh, before our interview, he was eating his dinner after practice and he had just finished his uh, rice bowl. And he very meticulously used like a wet wipe to clean, you know, his, his, uh, his food container, but also the chair that he had used as a table. And he kind of moved his hand back and forth, almost like he was a riding lawnmower over a lawn. Right. And he was just, you know, very, very careful to leave that place clean and disinfected. I just thought like, huh, you know, this guy has really learned his lesson. He's become a much more conscientious person about other people's health. And it was clear to me as well, that he cared a lot for his teammates and he wanted to kind of gain some respect back after that experience. He talked about wearing equality as his Jersey slogan on the back of his Jersey, because he wanted his teammates to view him as a part of the team um, and, and as equals uh, with, with each other. And I thought that was pretty powerful as well. And, and you look at where the jazz are now, number one team in the Western conference, they put their season back together uh, the, the next year in just a remarkable way. And so for him to score the first points of the bubble Uh, to hit the game-winning free throws, it almost kind of felt like a movie script. And I was just very grateful for his honesty and his candor because he went through the ringer. Uh, No question about it there for a couple months. So I want to get into the encore aspect of the bubble, but first I want to ask you one last question about the bubble itself. And with the knowledge that you have today and being through this bubble experience, if you could go back in time a year ago and you could help organize the bubble. Is there anything about the bubble at all uh, that you would change? Or was this just the perfect circumstance for the NBA? I think that they really, really nailed it. You know, I think that they probably needed to come up with some other activities or diversions for people to just like, you know, stress relievers. The players were so happy when the families were allowed to be there. But I think it was smart to not bring all the families early You know, some of the coaches complained that they weren't able to have family members. I think that's a fair complaint. Like if you got down to the final four teams, you probably should have been allowed to have a a guest. You know, it wouldn't have been that many extra people to add. And, you know, certainly the coaches were going through the same incredible amounts of stress um, as the players were as those playoffs unfolded. But I think from a health and safety standpoint, they absolutely nailed it. That's the bubble's legacy. And you look at this season just consider how many games got postponed this year. I mean, wasn't Oklahoma city and and Houston, the first game of the year postponed, like right off the bat. Um, And that just tells you, yeah, exactly. That just tells you the real risk factor that they were able to avoid, um, you know, with this pandemic. So I think if I would change anything, it would have been the calendar. You know, I think that the finals got overshadowed by football, by baseball playoffs, by college football and a bunch of other sports that all came back. Hockey was going on as well. And I think if the NBA could do it over, maybe if they had had a shorter, um, you know, entire program so they could end their finals a little bit earlier, maybe the television viewership numbers would have been better. I, I would, that was the only kind of feeling to me of emptiness was this idea that 
you know, you had this big moment, LeBron winning his fourth ring. That's a historic thing. He's chasing Jordan in the GOAT debate, all this kind of stuff. And, and the TV numbers just were not where you expected them to be. And it was totally because it was happening in October rather than June. And I think, uh, you know, if they could, could have just done it a couple of weeks earlier, they might've been able to avoid that before the NFL got started. And that might've been a, uh, you know, a bigger win for the NBA. But other than that, I thought it was a, a very slickly orchestrated experience. I felt safe there and I really appreciated the NBA for that. And, uh, you know, it's a once in a, a lifetime thing. You know, I, I can't imagine another scenario where they would go back there and, and do it the same way, especially now that we've back into arenas and, and fans are back in the building. I think the money talks so powerfully um, that, you know, we're not going to ever see anything quite like it ever again. And so I want to get into like the play on the court and, and everything that goes into actually playing in the bubble. But first, what was the story that you thought was a great story, like just a, a great story, but it just missed the cut of making the book because maybe there just wasn't a place for it or maybe there was something else that superseded it. But what's that story that you wish you could have gotten into the book, but it just couldn't quite get in there? Well, that's a great question. You know, I, I think I, I tried to be as thorough as possible in the book. So just so, for your knowledge, I went to every single playoff game from the second round on. So I was chasing every last storyline that I possibly could. And I think ultimately by trying to bring in as many teams as possible, I did have to cut down on, um, you know, some of the individual teams. Like, for example, uh, you know, some people might have just written this as a Lakers title book. Right. Because think about the season they had getting Anthony Davis, Kobe Bryant's death, rallying after Kobe Bryant's death, having the shutdown, putting all the pieces back together, um, and then, you know, surviving the playoffs, uh, you know, with sensational performances from their stars and all sorts of unsung heroes like, you know, Dwight Howard and Rajon Rondo. And that's enough for a book by itself. And, and for me, that was a tricky balance because, uh, you know, I was in L.A. I covered Kobe's last year. I understand exactly how much he means to the, the L.A. sports fans. But I wanted to make sure I had the, the balance with all the other teams, too. So there was some some Lakers stuff that got left on the cutting room floor um, just because I didn't want it to be just a Lakers book. I wanted to bring in all the different teams. Uh, at the same time, I tried to offer a lot of reflections on LeBron's greatness. I mean, getting to see him up close and personal every single day when he's preparing for games, hours before the games, going through these diligent shooting routines watching him meditate and, and try to manage his anxiety in the bubble, which was a real uh, problem for a lot of people. You know, Paul George talked about uh, depression and anxiety that he was going through as well, um, you know, was, was really fascinating to just, you know, see how he approaches this thing from a systematic standpoint, because everything with LeBron, it's very carefully or, uh, orchestrated and organized to make sure he's just optimized as an athlete and as a human being. So I wanted to get all those details in. I really wanted to tell the story of the champagne celebration afterwards because, you know, there's no fans in the building. And yet these guys were going nuts because they had not only won the title, but they had also secured their freedom. Right. They, they got to go home the next day. And they were so excited about that part as well. So it was a really fun championship celebration. I got totally doused with champagne by LeBron. Uh, and so we kind of included some details about that in the book as well. So um I think it was mostly just, you know, trying to find the right amount of Lakers to get in the book was, was the biggest challenge um, for me personally. And, uh, you know, hopefully I was able to strike the right balance. What team impressed you the most off the court in the bubble? Whenever you get glimpses of them, maybe playing cornhole, as we saw videos of Shea and Darius Basley doing that often and, and, and Chris Paul teaching them how to play and, and, and school them in that aspect of it. Like, was there a team that really stood out how much fun they were trying to have and how together they were and how much they were just trying to embrace this experience? 
Yeah, it's funny because what really stood out was the other stuff. It was like Houston combusting when, you know, Daniel House had his incident. And then Harden's just so pissed off after games. And Westbrook is just like, you know, beside himself with, uh, you know, like, how is this really, you know, how are seasons going to end? And Mike D'Antoni trying to laugh his way through it like he always does, but just not being able to do that. It was really the despair that stuck out more than the, the happiness stuff. And same thing with the Sixers. I mean, I'll never forget MB just like pinching the bridge of his nose during the, that sweep against Boston and just being so overwhelmed emotionally by the weight and talking about how he doesn't want to sweep on his resume. But, you know, I think ultimately he realized he wasn't going to be able to avoid it or the Clippers, you know, coming out of their series and Paul George saying, you know, oh, essentially, oh, we didn't feel like we had a play uh, championship mandate. And everybody's looking around saying, of course you did, Paul. Like you guys were the favorites the whole year. What are you talking about? No championship mandate. You, you know, you were supposed to come here and do it. And you obviously came up so short, you know, a couple of teams that had great chemistry. Um, I would definitely say Oklahoma City. I mean, they just always do. And the same thing this year, um, you know, and it's a credit to Sam Presti and, and their coaching staff as well. But there's always a great vibe around the Thunder. I would say the Blazers did as well. You remember they had that big push into the playoffs. Damian Lillard put the whole team on his back. And Yusuf Nurkic was dealing with the death of his grandmother due to COVID. And he just played sensationally well through that grief. And the team just rallied together to get that eighth seed in the playoffs. And that will always stand out to me as well. And then another team was the Boston Celtics. Um, you know, they just seemed like they found their groove. They had a bunch of young guys. And I think that really mattered when you had young teams. And, and Phoenix is another example with a whole bunch of young players who are kind of used to that AAU lifestyle. You know, the, the bubble is just kind of like an AAU tournament, right? And, and so teams like that settled in with their younger players driving things. Um, of course, Boston's chemistry hit a, a breaking point in the Eastern Conference Finals where they have the big locker room, brouhaha, and Marcus Smart comes storming out, uh, swearing profanities. And, uh, you know, so it, the bubble kind of wore on everybody. But uh, the Nuggets as well. You know, Michael Malone had that famous comment, you know, our team just loves the bubble. And Jamal Murray was so comfortable there, you know, two 50-point games, four 40-point games in the playoffs and just these crazy scoring explosions. So uh, one thing I always try to say to just sum it up, you know, the bubble was a real grind, but it was also very quirky. There was two sides to that coin. You had to be kind of, you know, able to be comfortable in your own skin while also being really mentally tough to kind of strike the balance. And I think teams like Denver, Portland, Boston, Phoenix, OKC, those teams definitely stand out to me as, as being able to kind of do both of those things at the same time, whereas teams like the Clippers, Bucks, Sixers, Rockets, they just really weren't able to do it. So OKC got knocked out in the first round, of course. So this was kind of before you could do a ton of things as the, as he's laid out for us so far. But do you have any great bubble stories about that 2019-20 Thunder team, which holds such a special place in, in Oklahoma City history? Do you have anything interesting about them? Well, I talked to Chris like during the middle of, um, you know, right before the shutdown, you know, just kind of coincidentally to just get his thoughts on how the union pulled this whole thing together. And I think what I will always remember is just this idea for Chris Paul specifically, he's always juggling things like crazy. And there's so many egos in the NBA. When you're the head of the Players Association, you've got to kind of bring all these people into line and to, to reach agreements where no one's going to be happy with it. I mean, just look at the All-Star weekend, right? You know, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Harden, all these guys come out and bash the idea of playing an All-Star game. And if you're Chris Paul, you've got to be the practical leader who says, guys, we need the money. You know, this is important. You know, we can donate money to uh, HBCUs if we do this. And you have to be kind of the loudest voice in the room pulling everybody together. 
And so what I'll remember is just thinking, you know, Chris Paul is unbelievably, you know, grateful that the whole thing came together. He's seeing his plan kind of come to fruition as they're there in the bubble. And then all of a sudden, a completely unforeseen event with the Jacob Blake shooting happens. And now he's got to be nimble and on his toes and try to play peacemaker and bring everybody back together one more time. And then once he does that, he has to go out and lead the Thunder into a playoff series against his former team, the Houston Rockets, and kind of his rival, quote unquote, you know, James Harden and Russell Westbrook. I mean, just imagine that four and five day stretch for a guy. And you notice the Thunder, I mean, they did take a little bit of a step back right after that shutdown. I think there was a pretty bad loss in the first game after the shutdown. And I just think, well, like, how couldn't there have been, you know, given what Chris Paul had to go through, calling Obama, making sure that the Clippers and the Lakers were still on board, you know, making sure that, um, you know, Michelle Roberts was able to be respected by the players in the heat of the moment. Um, I'll just never forget, you know, just kind of putting yourself in his position and, and all, those, uh, all those challenges simultaneously. And for them to take it all the way down to the last second, right, of, of game seven, I mean, it was just a fingertip separating those two teams at the end of that game. Uh, it's a real testament to, you know, Chris Paul's leadership abilities, his mental fortitude, and how much the team around him bought in, right? I mean, it, they very easily could have folded, and some other teams did fold. I mean, Portland, you know, double-digit loss coming out of the, the shutdown, they go home. Orlando, same thing. You know, they're on the first flight home as soon as, uh, or I guess probably the first drive home for a lot of their players because they're there locally. But, um, you know, Milwaukee takes care of them very quickly after the bubble shuts down. And I think uh, for Oklahoma City, they didn't roll over after that shutdown. That was a real opportunity for people to get out of Dodge if they wanted to. And Oklahoma City went down fighting to the very last second. From your vantage point, just covering these games and, and getting to be in the arena and talking to players via Zoom and communicating with them, what was the biggest adjustment in terms of playing in these small venues and actually playing the game of basketball inside the bubble of just the X's and O's and, and the fluidity and, and the rhythm of playing in smaller venues and the new sight lines, no fans, what all went into the difficulties of just playing the actual game? Well, the main thing that the players and coaches talked about was generating your own momentum and energy because you can't rely on the crowd to pick you up if you're giving up a run or to cheer you on if you're making a run, right? And so you saw a number of teams come out and be very, very, very vocal. And, uh, you know, that, that starts with the Lakers. I mean, they were probably the loudest team the entire bubble. And it was, you know, starting with LeBron calling out defensive coverages. But, you know, all the, all the guys who were like leaders on the court, um, you know, Chris Paul certainly falls in that category too, really made a point of talking even more than usual to just keep their teammates focused, but also motivated. You know, one other behind, uh, behind the scenes story I should tell you about Chris Paul that I, I forgot earlier. There was a moment where he was defending LeBron and LeBron was backing him down and, and Chris Paul got called for a foul and Chris didn't like it. So he, he, he took it up with the ref on the court first and that ref, you know, was, was listening, but not really swayed by Chris's argument. Right. So then he goes to the second ref and the second ref is, is giving him the same treatment. So then Chris walked down the entire length of the court and found Monty McCutcheon, who's the vice president of referees for the NBA, the, you know, the kind of the, the guru, so to speak. And he's a former official himself. And, and Chris Paul basically did the basketball equivalent of, you know, I want to speak to the manager, you know, like you might do if you go to the grocery store and you're not being treated fairly. And he, he so he goes straight to the manager, Monty McCutcheon, and he just keeps talking and talking to Monty about arguing the call. 
And, you know, Monty is trying to kind of, you know, pacify him and, and so forth. And, and Chris Paul just won't let it go. Finally, he comes back out during halftime, Chris Paul does, to talk to Monty McCutcheon again. He's still so fired up and competitive about this call. And Monty finally has to tell him, look, Chris, you can't come over to where I'm sitting because of the health protocols. And I can't step forward, uh, you know, onto the court to have like a face-to-face conversation with you. So we can continue having this dialogue, but we still need to be six feet apart. And I'm just thinking, man, what a competitor, Chris Paul. Half an hour after this call, he still wants to argue the intricate details of was it a defensive foul? Should it have been called a charge? And he just will not let it go because he wants to make his point. And on top of it all, we're still in this weird bubble environment from a health and safety standpoint where he can't just go and have a man-to-man conversation. He's got to kind of shout this thing across the gym because of these crazy health protocols. So that was the kind of thing you're probably never going to see in an NBA game again, where, you know, you've got the guy right there having that conversation, but uh, just another like, you know, up close and, and personal sliver of Chris Paul, the competitor that kind of came out in that moment. That is a, an amazing story. And Ben, you've been so great with your time. I want to leave on one high note, this kind of funny note. We've all been working from home and working in our home offices and trying to figure out how to get this good workflow going and working from home as an adjustment. Working in the bubble, what was your work setup like? Where did you get work done? Where was the most interesting or weirdest or coolest or just normal place that you got your work done in the bubble? So I did, we were very limited where we could do that, you know, again, because, you know, you had to be distanced from people and you'd really, especially if you were indoors, you had to be isolated. You know, they didn't want any shared group areas. So I did almost all of my writing either at the gym during games, right. From my media workstation. And we had incredible seats. I mean, I like to say I got the Jack Nicholson or Rihanna experience at some of these games. I mean, we were sitting there right on the court. It was absolutely awesome. Um, and, but most of my writing other than that was done at my hotel room. And that was a blessing and a curse because, you know, it was a very, you know, it was a, a nice big desk in the room. I actually got myself a second monitor so I could have a little like battle station where I could write and, you know, feel like I was being as efficient as I am at home. And there was a nice television so I could watch some games if I, you know, if I wasn't actually in the gyms because they're being televised. But the, the downside to it was they did finally open up a room service menu. And so that meant a lot of late night veggie burgers and French fries. And like I was saying, man, uh, it was a mental test being down there. And so, you know, you do little things like, well, hey, if you write the story, you can go ahead and give yourself a, a veggie burger as a reward. Right. So, you know, I actually wound up putting weight on when I was in the bubble and I slept a lot worse uh, because I was working so much, you know, covering these different games. And so, you know, what I noticed, you know, coming back to the work from home experience here in L.A., you know, I was uh, I got myself healthier pretty quick. You know, I was eating better once I got home. And, uh, you know, I was also, uh, you know, able to get back into my full exercise routine because I wasn't dealing with the crazy humidity of Orlando and, and the crazy heat down there. So that was some of the biggest uh, challenges. But, you know, the food there, you know, it was and the players complained about it a lot. I'm not a super picky eater, but, you know, it was a lot of potatoes. It was a lot of meat and I'm not a meat eater. So that was a little bit tough. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, they had a veggie meatloaf, which was just like this big brown brick just disgusting. I mean, if you saw it, you'd probably do the puke face emoji. And so we were dealing with some challenges like that as well, every once in a while along the way. So Ben, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you hopping on. Tell them where they can get Bubble Ball and all about your work. Yeah, you can pre-order Bubble Ball basically everywhere. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's Books, you know, pretty much wherever you get books, you'll be able to find it. There's going to be an audiobook version as well. So you'll be able to get it on Audible and it comes out May 4th. Uh, they can follow me on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. I've got a little preview 
of the book on there. If people want to get like a, a look inside of some of the pictures and the dedication and just all that kind of dorky stuff, uh, you know, it's, it's on my Instagram account as well. And of course they can follow along at uh, washingtonpost.com slash sports. You will not want to miss it. It's a fantastic book. Bubble ball is going to be available May 4th. Pre-order it right now. Thank you so much, Ben, for hopping on this podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. We'll be back on Monday for more Locked on Thunder. Be good and be good to one another. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.